Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Madeline Moon here for another episode of my podcast. I'm super excited about today's show because we're talking to someone who is a legend in the holistic health, women, fitness, men's fitness, bodybuilding, um, natural health, weight loss, X, Y, and Z, everything you can imagine, but he's been doing it without prescribing one dietary theory. I know, crazy. Everyone out there seems to have a diet that they believe in and that they think is going to be the absolute answer to all your problems. And Scott Abel is actually someone who isn't going to be presenting that idea. Instead, he's actually telling us to simplify things and to live a well-rounded, balanced lifestyle. His no-nonsense approach is genius, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have him on the show today. What I will ask of you today is that you could share this with someone you know that's been struggling and bouncing from diet to diet to diet. As you will hear from Scott, he prescribes it as the North American diet mentality. It's someone that's been going around and trying all these different diets. So if you know someone who's been doing this, or if you yourself have been doing this, please share this with your audience, share this with your friends. Just click the link to the show notes and send it over to a friend and say, hey, listen to this podcast, because this one I actually really want people to listen to. And I really want people to know all about Scott's mentality and his advice and help that he wants to prescribe for people. If you don't want to do that, if you could go on over to iTunes and leave uh, a review on um, my show, doesn't have to be for this episode, but just for the show in general, that would be absolutely awesome. As I've said before, this is the currency of iTunes. So the more reviews I get, the better the show is going to be ranked. So if you're getting anything out of the Mind Body Musings podcast, any little thing, a review will help me tremendously. So without further ado, let's go head on over to the show. You're listening to the Mind Body Musings podcast, the show where you can learn the most intricate details about the body, the mind, and how lifestyle choices link the two to create individual health for every shape and size. I'm fitness and nutrition expert Maddie Moon, here to enlighten you on how to live your life in a way that promotes satiation, thrivation, and self-appreciation. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome back to the Mind Body Musings podcast. Today, we are joined by a guest that I first discovered on YouTube a few years back when I was heavily involved in the fitness community. While I was being bombarded left and right with diet tips and strategies, Scott Abel was preaching a message that wasn't all too known to our society. He was teaching the message of BS-free health, down-to-earth fitness, and unconditional body respect. Scott has counseled thousands of women on overcoming eating disorders, body image troubles, and self-esteem issues. Scott believes that a total mind and body approach is the key to transforming not just your physical appearance, but your overall mental and emotional health as well. With this approach, he has enabled his clients to transform not just their bodies, but their lives with his inside-out approach rather than the conventional outside-in approach that is predominantly used by the diet and fitness industry. I really resonate with Scott because he's been teaching a message that I just recently started preaching this year, and that is fitness does not necessarily mean leanness. Though Scott knows how to accomplish both of these goals, he's direct in his approach and always puts health first. He doesn't cultivate imaginary expectations in his clients, but instead he gives them the tools and knowledge they need to succeed in being the best version of themselves. So without any more delay, welcome to the show, Scott. Well, that's quite an intro. I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm so excited. I don't even want to 
waste a single minute. So let's just go ahead and jump on in. How, how did you get started at, as being a fitness coach and getting involved in the fitness and health industry in the first place? Um, I think the way most people start, I mean, I just grew up playing sports and everything grew up across uh, the street from a schoolyard. And back then you spent all your time outside. So it was just a natural gravitation to always be doing some kind of sport. And then that sort of blossomed into other things. And then, um, you know, got into the whole fitness thing that turned into the bodybuilding thing. And then the bodybuilding thing turned into, um, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was academically, I was pursuing, uh, undergrad and graduate degrees in social theory and social work where I became, um, quite, quite a well-known counselor for moving between what we call moving between worlds. At the same time, my passion was, uh, bodybuilding. So I ended up down in Los Angeles working at uh, something called Muscle Camp, which back then was sort of the pinnacle of if you were invited there, you were a mover and shaker in, in the industry. And um, I was the only Canadian selected out of applicants from like uh, 80 countries. So it was quite an honor. And from there, basically, I came back. And what I didn't realize at the time was um, I was already sort of forging a path um, and people were following it. And so people that... Uh, were under my charge, started winning all the competitions, and they weren't just winning the competitions, they were dominating the competitions um, to the point where I was actually, you know, built up a sort of back backlash <laughs> against, against me because the people were just cleaning up, and so the reputation grew with that, and and uh, with that, you know, I, I, I kind of got a reputation as being a fitness expert, and like I said, you know, uh, a lot of that has to do uh, with with my other background in social work, and that's understanding people. And uh, you know, I keep saying we're not in the fitness industry; we're in the service industry, and we need to recognize that fitness is just the vehicle that drives it. But uh, really, if you're someone, whether you're a personal trainer or a coach, I'm, I've never been a personal trainer. People get that confused all the time. Uh, whether you're one or the other, you're in the service industry, and you re- need to realize that. And the best tool in that industry is not fitness knowledge or nutrition knowledge; it's community skills. Yes, that's so interesting. I feel like people don't realize how much of like fitness is just an emotional and mental thing. Like a lot of changes happen when you make a physical transformation. Like say it's weight loss, if you lose a lot of weight, a lot of stuff goes on in your mind or say that you um, have emotional eating, uh, an emotional eating disorder. I mean, of course, that's all within emotions and being a type of coach you're more than just someone that's helping you get physically from point a to point b but also mentally yeah it's a real limitation to just be uh concentrating on physique transformation because without um the personal growth that should go with any endeavor um, then you're more limited by what you accomplish than you are expanded and i talk a lot about contraction and expanding your awareness and your personal growth because if you don't do that you open yourself up to uh, a lot of potential consequences of pursuing physique transformation and that's what i've been dealing with for the last decade or so even though i'm four decades into this, um, the last decade or so has been trying to unravel for people the consequences of being obsessed with uh, uh, just physique or figure transformation, and that in terms of uh, metabolic damage, eating disorders, ednos, which is eating disorders not otherwise uh, diagnosed, um, those kind of otherwise specified, sorry, um, 
and uh, all kinds of weight and diet issues. I've written several, several books on this and just how backward the North, what I call the North American diet mentality mm-hmm. actually, actually is when it comes to um, health, balance, and wellness. Uh, we tend to think in North America that everything is about achievement, and we also tend to think that uh, everything uh, is about obsession and that if it doesn't, uh, you know, this nonsense that what doesn't kill you makes stronger, which isn't true at all because mm-hmm. a lot of the, what I've witnessed in this industry for 40 years now is that a lot of the things uh, that aren't killing people doesn't make them makes them weaker and weaker uh, day in day out year in year out and usually that has a lot to do with um, body image perception so that's kind of been um, a focus of mine that you know just because someone has developed a fantastic body doesn't mean they have the fantastic life that goes with it. And, uh, you know, what an illusion, the magazines and whatnot, and, and the websites, and now that with, uh, with Fakebook, uh, the whole Fakebook presentation of uh, digital life that looks all great on the outside. Mm-hmm. Fakebook, and, and, yeah. And, yeah, and anything but on the inside. So, as you said, you know, uh, for me, I try to keep it real, and I try to speak the truth. I've been at the top of this industry now, like I said, for going into four decades. And when you're at the top, you get to see and witness things that other people don't. Um, and, you know, I try to speak the truth of that. The reason I could have stayed at the top and made double, triple, maybe 10 times the money I was making there. But um, I came to the conclusion that if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And uh, I wanted to uh, affect solutions. And I wanted to help the people that the industry tends to ignore, um, which is the people who are overweight and who have struggled for a long time. And, you know, let's, you know, this industry has a tendency to, you know, let's just focus on the quote unquote beautiful people. And, mm-hmm. um, that never, that never sat right with me. So, um, let's, let's be all inclusive instead of exclusive about this. And, you know, let's not tell people who are victims of a specific North American cultural determinism. Let's not tell them there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with the system that uh, tends to leave a lot of people out. So, yeah, that. yeah. I've, I've like lately, I've kind of been thinking a lot about this general area and how like the media they can't sell us something that we already have. Like they just can't do that. It doesn't work that way. If they keep presenting pictures of average people of what we look like what you look like like you know they're not gonna people are not gonna be like oh my gosh i'm so wanting of that so they have to pick something that's first of all hard enough to get second of all even harder to maintain and that's why we we physically buy into these things we financially buy into these things because we're we're giving we're being like sold this promise of having something we don't yet have and that's why it's excluding so many of us americans and it's pinpointing this one particular type of body that none of us really can have and like I said maintain and that's where it gets really confusing for people because it's the same image over and over and over again on social media platforms um, TV shows and all that stuff so very glad that you're representing the truth yeah and and, you know a lot of what haunts people is what I try to bring them back to is is um false expectations they have unrealistic expectations and that's really what haunts them so uh you know um where they can be metabolically uh, optimal at a size eight it's not good enough until they're a size four and yet when they get to size four that's when all hell breaks loose metabolically and psychologically in terms of eating disorders and whatnot so uh, a lot of it is uh, you know 
learning how to talk to people instead of trying to talk at people. The industry does enough of talking at people. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd prefer to talk to them and uh, just try to get them to relate. And like you said earlier, you know, I, I say in my uh, Empowered Women course all the time, you know, Oz never gave nothing to the Tin Man that he didn't already have. Uh, this uh, lyrics from a song, but uh, what the modern industrial beauty machine does is uh, create what what you call the what I call the cycle of want, uh, so that people um, will be separated from their self connection, so that industry can sell it back to them in many ways, shapes, and forms. So um, I want to get people back to knowing that your self-connection is something you're born with. Um, it's not something you have to go find. You have to stop chasing what you already have and just uh, learn how to own it again. Yeah, it's already within you. Um, mm -hmm. So you've been in the bodybuilding world obviously forever and you've probably seen it change a lot, especially, I mean, I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe a lot more recently because I mean, even I'm noticing that a lot of different dietary theories and new methods and all this stuff is popping up out of like everywhere. And I'm just curious, like what are some of the new um, bodybuilding protocols that are incorrect and that you're trying to nip in the bud right now? Well, I'm all I'm out of the hardcore end of things. I've been out of it for a, the hardcore end of things for a while, and the rest of what's going on on the internet and in I call it recycled knowledge, um, trying to create stuff and present it like it's new and improved when it's not. It's just a new spin on old concepts. Uh, you know, things like the DNA diet is just a new spin on uh, you know eat right for your blood type. It's the same kind of nonsense that's been um, you know, debunked over and over again. But if you present it in a new way, then you get new people who are just as desperate as the former people to go after it. Uh, and then there's all this stuff about, um, you know, micromanagement and, and overcomplicating. And overcomplicating, uh, interestingly enough, it, it it caters and it, it appeals to a mindset that wants to believe all this stuff is complicated because if it's complicated, then you have a reason and an excuse not to not to be where you think you should be. So it becomes comfortable to think that all this stuff is rocket science uh, when it's really not. I mean, it's, it's really a matter of the old saying um, – the truth is simple and simplicity is the truth. So, you know, rather than get into the what's uh, and the whatnots, I'd rather get into the why's and how's of all this stuff is just, you know, recycled nonsense. Like I got an email this morning from a client asking me about um, uh, some nonsense transverse abs stuff. That, you know, it's all what I call, you know, personal, tr personal trainer um mythology where you know they want to make things more and more complicated than they need to be without addressing who their client actually is and what their clients needs actually are they you know they they, they tend to create this bubble of complication where it's not necessary the real real genius and real expertise comes with simplifying things, not making them more complicated. So the modern industry, because everybody now is in the digital world and vying for attention and vying for, you know, I'm the expert and you're not kind of stuff, what this leads to is everybody trying to one-up each other on, you know, how much it looks like they know. Whereas the more complicated you make something to a real expert like myself tells me that you really don't know what the hell you're talking about because it's not rocket science stuff and you know my people like i said they didn't just win shows they dominated shows for more than a decade and we did that with simplicity not complication 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess like my question for you then would be if, if all these people that are winning these bodybuilding shows are dominating them, how do you do that in a healthy way? Because from my experience, I mean, I've had two different coaches and they were probably, I mean, it was just my terrible luck, I guess. But <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just like, for my first coach, I ate the same exact foods for four months in a row and like literally not a single change. And it didn't involve any fruit. It didn't involve any other vegetables besides green beans. Like that was all I had for four months. Um, not a single cheat day, just that. And that was my first real diet. Like okay. I, I had done, um, I had, I mean, my followers know I've had eating problems for years and years and years, but I never followed an exact diet. I just did the kind of the, I'm not gonna eat anything today diet. And for this show, it was my first real diet, so the weight kind of just flew off. And I was like, wow, this really works. Like, I guess I need to eat like this forever, you know, because mm. I was so happy that I had lost like 12 pounds and I was already so tiny. And then for my second show, I was doing like two hours of training a day, plus I was eating towards the last five weeks, I was eating 900 calories. Um, wow. so I had major metabolic damage. Yeah. There's going to be repercussions for that every time. Yeah. So that's what I've been exposed to. And I, I hear from people like, oh, there's a better way to do it. There's a healthier way to do it. But honestly, nonsense. I'm not nonsense. sure. Nonsense, 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 which is why yeah. I moved away from that, especially for women. And I direct most of this to women. The reason I wrote the book metabolic damage and the dangers of dieting is because I was around before there was figure and bikini and fitness. And as that got introduced, I, I watched firsthand as a social worker and what it was doing, not just to bodies, but doing to psych psychologies as well, as you just said, um, you know, uh, all eating disorders are emotional in foundation, but they can be triggered by diets and they usually are triggered by diets. So, um, you know, the, a lot of the emotional background stuff that attracts people to compete, that's the foundation. That's the gun, if you will. And the bullets are actually the diets that people undertake. And interestingly enough, keto and, and no-carb diets are the ones that tend to cause the most aggressive forms of eating disorders and the ones that are hardest to overcome. That's a whole separate issue. But, um, yes, so all this nonsense that, that goes on on the Internet that, oh, my coach does it the healthy way comes from people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. I almost use the F word there. I feel so strongly about this. Um, because I've listened to this nonsense for years now, people talking out of both sides of their mouth. The reason I got away from that and training um, people um, for the hardcore end of the female side of the industry is it doesn't matter the approach you take when the end result is based in unhealthy um, biological models. What that means is women were meant by construction, by design, by evolution to have twice the body fat as men. When they go below what's natural for their body fat level, it doesn't matter how they got there. Metabolic consequences are going to be the result. And the, the example I always use in sem seminars and podcasts like this is if you and I both get in a car, uh, a different car, uh, but the same type of car – and you put your seatbelt on, but I don't, and we both drive over a cliff, is it really going to matter that you had your seatbelt on and I didn't? Um, you know, if we both drove off the, the Grand Canyon, we're going to probably end up with the same result. And the thing, the point is here is that it's unnatural for women to try to get to these levels of leanness that they're getting for for competition. And there's going to be fallout and consequences for that, metabolic damage, metabolic burnout. 
psychological issues. Now, there are there some people with what we call metabolic uh, resilience. Yes, those are the people who tend to be okay at competing, but they are also what we call um, what we call in marketing and legal parlance held out to be. In other words, what that means is they are held out to be the example that everyone can have. That yes, you can do this too, but. What, it, what the body can tolerate metabolically differs on an individual level. So while, say, um, some, some Susie Smith, I can train and, and she can lose 20 pounds and compete and her rebound post-contest, maybe uh, she just comes back to that original 20-pound uh, rebound and she's fine. Whereas Jane Doe, she loses that same 20 pounds and competes, but after her contest, she regains 40 pounds or 50 pounds. Um, this is because their individual innate tolerance, metabolic tolerance, is different. But when they're all shooting for the same end result, then you know it's like playing Russian roulette. You don't know if you're that person at higher risk till it happens. And then once it happens, there's also this nonsense online that your guru or your coach uh, has the recipe to correct it that all metabolic damage is correctable and all post-diet rebounds are correctable. That's also nonsense. There isn't just an answer to all the damage you do. If you get in a head-on collision with your car and uh, it needs to be assessed by insurance, oftentimes they're going to come back and say the car's totaled and there's nothing we can do except get another car. So all this you know, nonsense about, oh, my trainer knows how to fix metabolic damage. Well, I'm the guy who wrote the book on it, and I've only seen that fixed maybe 50% of the time. Um, and if people actually have it, a lot of people hide behind those two words as well and don't know what they really mean. But if they want to know what it really means, it's in my book. Um, Besides the point, though, uh, the reason I moved away from that is it's not healthy and it's not uh, biologically sound for women to try to get to the points of leanness that are now uh, rewarded for and awarded at contests. And it's it's really, really risky and it's long-term risky and it's not just risky metabolically, but it has severe uh, psychotromic um uh, potential to do real psychological damage as well because women, ladies who compete, start thinking that that contest body that took five months to get to and they can only hold for 12 or 18 hours, they start thinking that's my real body. Mm -hmm. No, that's not your real body. It's never been your real body or it wouldn't take five months to have achieved it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they start getting confused with body image distortion and boy, does that have psychological um rebounds. Plus, being at the top of the industry as long as I have, you know, it's like I always say, um, when you look in the magazines, you see uh, the picture but not the video. Uh, you get a representation of the picture uh, but not the life that, that leads that – the life that's led that leads to that picture. And, uh, you know, I know that most of those lives um, – are really not as glamorous and, and uh, oftentimes more tragic. Uh, for instance, just this week that came across my desk, and your listeners can do a search on this later if they like. Um, from a, from my era, someone who reached out to me for help back in the day, which I refused to because I could see potential uh, nightmare coming, which it has. Look up Denise Rutkowski. Um, second in the Olympia before there was figure and she was one of the first uh, real sex symbols in the female side of the industry. Uh, look at uh, where they are then and now and um, I think the shock value of seeing that I think um, 
you know, a lot of people are going to want to live in denial. And like I say, denial isn't a river in Egypt. Um, but if you look up Denise Rutkowski and look at where how she looks now, who she is now, and when she was second in the Olympia, when everyone wanted to take her picture and read her articles and, uh, you know, uh, want to look like her uh, again. Okay, you want to look like someone, but you want the life that goes with looking that way. Um, and people need to start, you know, adjusting for context. Um, and, and no one does that in this industry, and I've been doing it for a long time and saying, okay, you know, most champions in this industry, getting back to your original question, uh, doing it in a healthy way, competing, the competing side of the industry is all about obsession. You can't be uh, a balanced person and compete. And anyone who says that really talking out of both sides of their mouths again because of what it takes to produce that kind of physique, all other things have to be put aside. And a lot of the times that becomes a crutch for people. They can, they just put their real life aside for 12 or 16 weeks and use the competition as an excuse and they'll deal with it later. But life goes on without them. And usually what they haven't dealt with builds, builds up, builds up, builds up. And then after the contest, not only do they have the real life stuff that they haven't been dealing with, relationships and other things, but then they've got the post-competition rebounds that are really jolting their self-esteem as well. So they continue to avoid real life issues and it just gets passed on and passed on and passed on. So it becomes something that you know we do in the name of fitness, but never in the true spirit of the word fitness. And uh, you know, people, we have to start looking at that. Just because someone has a hot body doesn't mean they have a hot life and doesn't mean they feel good about themselves. Um, you know, I mean, the porn industry is riddled, the history of the porn industry is riddled with ladies who have quote-unquote hot bodies um, who don't feel good about themselves. That's why they end up where they end up. So uh, the same thing's going on in the fitness industry, and I just couldn't stand by and, and watch the fallout anymore. It's like watching you know train wrecks over and over again and, and thinking you know that it's okay. So And the more research I did on eating disorders and – and uh, metabolic damage and stuff, the more obvious it was that these things are, are causes, uh, you know, to, to the greater issues. So they don't, they don't solve what's going on. They actually contribute to the problems. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting how so many people start doing these competitions at the very, very beginning, like 12 weeks in advance. So like, this sounds like something fun. Like, I'm going to do it because it sounds fun. And then they go through it, and then they put aside their relationships, they put aside their night out, they start meal planning and prepping and like waiting for every single meal to eat every single three hours or starting to get kind of like um, like they're hungry after one hour because their body's getting used to that or adjusting to that, um, counting every single calorie. And then day after day after doing all of these rituals, you start thinking in your head like it's going to be worth it. It's going to be so worth it. And you totally forget you start to do this just for fun. And then you're six weeks out and you're like, oh my gosh, this is all I can think about. And in the morning you take a picture of your abs and you put it on Instagram so the whole world oh can God. see. And everyone's like, wow, she must have the most amazing life. She's so beautiful. She's got perfect abs. What they really don't know is she's spending every single waking moment of her life waiting for that one day while all the people looking at this picture are living every single day to the fullest, happy, with relationships, every single day is great. But for that one competitor, it's that one day that's good, like depending on well, where they place. And that's not even usually good. They're so depleted by the time they get mm -hmm. there. The majority of them don't even enjoy that day. But separate from that, I mean, you've just, you know, you've, you've said a mountain of stuff that, you know, requires address. And uh, I think for a lot of the ladies, they, they you know, Innocently enough, they start doing something for one reason, but continuing 
continue to do it for another and they don't realize the transition as it's happening so mm -hmm. they start doing something for holistic sound reasons but they continue doing it for reasons that become more and more obsessive i had someone wanted to join with me this week and and you know i wrote her back and said i wouldn't want to live this life i mean her whole assessment information was uh wearing i forget what the thing's called but you know keeps track of how many steps she takes in a day so she had pages and pages of how many steps she had monday to saturday oh. she was uh if it fits your macros so she knew how many macros and calories and proportion she was taking in and how many calories she burned on her cardio and uh, it was just a collection of numbers that went on for pages pages and pages and that's what i call life inside the thin cage that's not freedom that's not liberation and the more your life becomes about less stuff and and more about numbers um, then the less you have a life to fit it into and you know that's the consequences. That's not a payoff. That's not an expanded self. That's a constricted, contracted self. And a lot of people think it's worth the payoff because um, lower levels of consciousness, what we call stimulation, validation, and attention goals, you can get that on Facebook. You can get that on, you know, in the digital world of Instagram. And you can have 50,000 followers because you post pictures of your abs every day. But, um, Basically, in the end, you're not just kidding them, you're kidding yourself. Uh, and that does, that's not true of everybody, but uh, it's true of enough of a majority of people that I've had to write, you know, what, five different books about this now. I've written books on eating disorders, books on the anti-diet approach, books on metabolic damage, um, uh, another book called Beyond Metabolism, which teaches us that it's really none of this is really about nutritional knowledge. It's about diet psychology and how our human brains evolved have little to do with the initial, um, nutritional components of foods. But, you know, people live under this delusion of the North American diet mentality. How many people I know who go online and take courses, uh, you know, precision nutrition or whatever other courses, and it never solves their overweight issues. It never solves their obsession with diet. It just re-entrenches their obsession with these things. So they keep thinking they're chasing answers, which really what they're chasing is a reinforcement to obsess about the exact thing that keeps them trapped. And again, all this done in the name of fitness, none of it done in the true spirit of the word fitness. And, you know, I, I just was amazed the deeper I got into this uh, as an expert, the, the more I realized that, um, you know, I didn't use this word at the time, but the more I realized that spiritually people weren't doing what I was doing for the same reasons I was doing it. And uh, that's why I think I excelled to the top of that world, whereas other people didn't because uh, – Everything I do is an extension of self-connection. It's about self-expressive uh, reality, being self-expressive and self-connected in a healthy way. It was never about not feeling good enough until uh, dot, dot, dot. I've never lived that way, and I'm, that's what I'm trying to empower other people to realize that you know, if you keep thinking I'm never good enough until and you live a life inside the thin cage, it's never going to be enough no matter what you accomplish and – uh, in that, what you accomplish, can you stay there? Uh, I use the phrase weight loss tourists all the time. Like, it, it, you know, if you're just going to be a weight loss tourist and a year from now you have the same goal you had last year, all the weight you lost, you regained, uh, then what are you learning? All you're learning is that you were a slave to something uh, that you truly don't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love all of your little phrases and words. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, <laughs> talking about like, 
you know, if it fits your macros and um, carbs and calories and all that stuff. I've had quite a few low carbers on my show, which I'm not low carb at all. Um, I love carbohydrates. I've tried that, of course. I've tried everything. But that's that mentally that's not that doesn't work for me and also with my energy i just don't think that's natural and i have a really hard time sometimes because a lot of my friends are low carbers and i never really know exactly what to say to their arguments because they seem kind of sound what are your thoughts about they're not they're not <laughs> these, these thoughts. I mean, okay, the thoughts are sound, but are they academically accurate? No, they're not academically accurate. I mean, this is a bunch of what I call, again, personal trainer gym floor nonsense. They go online, they do a search because they follow Guru X, who has a different, you know, number of following online. So, you know, they take. They sort of uh, cherry pick research that they like and, uh, you know, oh, well, this means this. Well, you know, the proof has always been around that carbohydrates are, are basically what's responsible for the existence of human beings. The whole paleo argument has been debunked over and over again. If people want to opt in at scottablefitness.com, I got a bunch of articles coming out on poor, poor Penny Paleo, I called it, um, and, and her nonsensical thinking. But uh, yeah, our brains, uh, the way our brains depend on carbs and the way the human beings survived um, because of starch carbs uh, is how civilizations were able to survive, whether it was rice in China, uh, potatoes in South America and Eastern Europe. Um, all of those things were dependent on, on starch carbs for survival. And that's, that's well documented, well known. Uh, again, this is a bunch of industry nonsense trying to make this stuff rocket science and doing more harm than good. Uh, the less carbs people have, like I said, the more intense the, the resulting um, eating disorders tend to be. You know, it's amazing how many people write to me who, quote unquote, I have a real problem with sugar binges and sugar cravings and I, I can't seem to control it. And then they send me their diet. And I'm following paleo or I'm following South Beach. Well, hello, that's the problem. You're not getting any real starch carbs. So if your body's telling you to crave sugar because you're not getting any of it in a, in a proper way, I mean, all this stuff is just common sense stuff um, that if you know and recognize, I mean, I've written extensively about this stuff, but the whole uh, low carb argument is just another thing to be afraid of. And I'm big on historical uh, nutrition. Like I've done, like I, I've looked at the history of nutrition and the history of diets to look at commonalities. Like I said, the, you know, earlier, the modern DNA diet is just a, is just a fool's uh, re reproduction of if it, you know, eat right for your blood type nonsense. Um, and if you look at the history uh, of diet nonsense, certain things uh, keep coming around. And in the 70s, it was make people afraid of fat. So in my day, you know, starch carbs were everything. Starch carbs were great. Uh, and you ate, you ate carbs with every meal. And then what happened after that was a reaction to that. And no, 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 let's make people uh, afraid of carbs. So it's all this North American diet mentality that is based in fear, make you afraid of food. Uh, whereas in, in my book, Beyond Metabolism, I spend chapters and chapters discussing how the mammalian brain, true of all mammals, including human beings and primates, evolved to be attracted to food, to see food and want it. So the North American diet mentality creates something that's unnatural for us to begin with, and that's to be afraid of uh, eating and afraid of 
of food. It's very unnatural for us uh, to think that way. So in terms of diet psychology, the North American diet mentality produces a paradox because it's saying be afraid of something that, that is unnatural for us to be afraid of. Um, so that creates all kinds of issues in and of itself. But in terms of nutrition history, what we see coming around again is – to make people afraid. It used to be fats and then it was carbs. And then, of course, if you're really sophisticated, well, you don't have to be afraid of all fats, just these certain fats over here. And now if you're even more sophisticated because you take an online course, well, you don't have to be afraid of all carbs, just these carbs over here that we call starches. You know, or or you know, if you carb backload, or if you eat your starch only at meal one, or if you eat your starch within 43 minutes and 20 seconds of your training, then you'll be okay. Uh, you know, all this nonsensical stuff that has no context to it at all, except in the fitness industry. Um, and if you look outside of the fitness industry, as I have, and study people who don't have weight issues, don't have body image issues, and you study how and why they are successful, it's because they think less about these things, not because they think more about them. So again, it comes back to uh, human psychology being the answer to the problem, whereas people tend to think if they focus more and more on this problem, um, then they'll find the answer. But when you focus more and more on the problem, you just become a bigger expert on having a problem. Uh, you don't really ever solve it. So um, that's that's the issue there. But I'm a little bit out of context with what you asked, but the whole low-carb thing has just, just been debunked by so many reputable people starting with Colin Campbell I mean his book recommends 80% carb diet um, so you know you can go on and on and this is the other thing about the faulty uh, North American diet mentality that tells people eat this not that I mean which is um, the whole ridiculous uh, foundation of the North American diet mindset that people who struggle think that their nutrition knowledge is what keeps them from finding the answer but if that was true with all the books out there by PhDs who all contradict each other from Colin, from Colin Campbell that I just mentioned who mentions an 80% carb starch diet to say somebody like uh, Atkins who, you know, who says carbs are evil. Um, you know, if all these doctors and PhDs disagree, then how is nutritional knowledge the answer? It's not. Diet psychology is the answer. So uh, people who struggle need to start accepting that they don't have – a nutritional comprehension issue. They have a thinking and feeling issue about diets and eating. Um, and I've said that all along. So, uh, you know, a lot of the times that people think, well, if I just have a better uh, handle on nutrition, but that's not true because even the experts disagree. So what does that tell us? And then all these people that I know of who have taken courses and they got degrees in nutrition and they're dietitians, go to the hospital and go to the dietitian ward and meet the dietitians and 75% of them are overweight. So if it was really about a nutritional knowledge, wouldn't these pe people be leading the field? Um, so the more and more in North America we make people obsess about these things, uh, the more and more it, it becomes a problem. So it's funny, the, the society that focuses – focuses most on leanness and appearance is the society with the most food, eating, and weight issues. And the societies that focus the least on these things are the societies with the least amount of food, eating, and weight issues. And in, in my book, The Anti-Diet Approach to Weight Loss and Weight Control, I talk all the time about the French paradox on how the traditional French uh, – 
according to North American standards, do everything that we're not supposed to do. They eat baguettes for breakfast. They eat a lot of cheese. They drink wine every day. They eat dessert. They do everything. Um, they eat a lot of saturated fat because they put butter on everything. They tend to smoke more than North Americans. Yet in every health indice there is, and I wrote all about this in my book, uh, you know, from from uh, blood markers of health to cholesterol levels, the French and to heart attacks, the French are way way healthier. Yet, according to the North American nutritional guidebooks, they do everything we're not supposed to do, and that's called the French paradox. So, how is that an issue? Well. In one of the studies, for instance, examining the French paradox, and the reason I say that uh, all, all these issues of weight consciousness and body image consciousness are issues of diet psychology, not nutrition. One of the examples, um, I think it was Dr. James Rosen. I might have the name wrong there. I got so many um, studies in my head. But they did a, a study of diet psychology, and what they did was they presented North Americans and uh, traditional French people with a picture of chocolate cake. Uh, with candles, and they asked them to write down their first, you know, first responses to that word. And 80% of the North Americans wrote the word guilt, and 80% of the of the French people wrote the word celebration. So as you see there, you have a minds mindsets that are totally wired differently in the presence of food. So the North American one's unhealthy because we're psychologically meant to be attracted to food and eating as a survival mechanism. It's how our brains evolved. And the French have it right that, oh, this is indulgent food. This is celebration. This is something I can enjoy. One mind is liberated. The other mind is severely psychologically uh, challenged just because of a picture of chocolate cake. So we see here that the whole North American approach is faulty from the beginning. And then people who try to solve their issues by existing within that mindset, within that belief system, end up having more consequences uh, than they do solutions almost all the time. And it, you know, in cognitive behavior therapy, that boils down. It all boils down to the body image and food connection, what we call ANTS. And ANTS is just an acronym for automatic negative thoughts. Um, once they start generating, they become habitual. It's hard to think your way out of it, and. Um, automatic negative thoughts, when you try to resist thoughts, you can't really resist how thoughts pop in your head or how they're triggered. You have to challenge the belief system that causes them. And that's the kind of stuff that you know I'm into and talk about because that's what frees people from what traps them. Yet they still keep thinking, uh, you know, if they lose weight, they'll feel better when actually it's the other way around. When you start to feel better, you'll lose weight and losing weight becomes less of a challenge and more of something you just do. Um, so, you know, it, like I said, everything that we're taught in the fitness and diet industry on this side of the thing is upside down and backwards. And I'm trying to put it right side up and front to back. Yeah. So say there's someone like listening to this podcast then. And I know this is you can't be very specific with this kind of question. So just generally, if someone's been eating a very low carb diet and they're trying they're listening to like, man, yeah, I really wish I could eat some carbs again. Where would you say that they should start? I mean, like. I, I love my dearest Matt Stone, and he would say, eat everything and anything that you want, like eat all the ice cream and pizza, but where would you stand if, if someone's been low carb for a while and they're not sure how much they can tolerate or handle, what would your advice be to them? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not so sure I would agree with that premise because of what you're doing there is, your re is what I call diet psychology rebellion. You're starting to rebel 
against the diet psychology that isn't working for you and that you struggle with. Um, so what Matt said there is kind of like it's a dangerous territory because it's diet psychology rebellion, which is still basically the flip side of the same coin. You're still resisting what I call the North American diet mentality. You're still fighting with it. You've just flipped the coin now to say, oh, well, now all things are okay. Um, and really, you could boil down every nutritional text you've ever read uh, into what Michael Pollan um, you know, probably the most insightful thing I've ever seen on any nutrition, diet, diet psychology, anything, boiled down to one sentence written by Michael Pollan, eat food, not a lot, mostly plants. And if you follow that for the rest of your life, you'll lose all the weight you want to weight, uh, lose and stay where you want to stay, uh, making it more complicated than that. Like I said, um, the truth is simple and simplicity is the truth. But to start, first you got to let, like I said just uh, two minutes ago, you got to let go of the belief system that carbs are bad and carbs would be something to be afraid of. You have to teach yourself not to be afraid of food, that living in a, in a world of indulgent food at the grocery stores and stuff and thinking you can avoid that makes absolutely no sense at all in the world we live in. So you have to become okay that food is meant to be an enjoyable experience and can be a psychologically connecting experience. That's why it's part of all holiday celebrations because it was very natural to our forefathers to celebrate with food because that's something that our human beings respond to. Um, so saying that, I would say to people, just start with whole foods and start with you know rice, brown rice, uh, you know um, whole grains. Uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes. You know, start with those things, and then you know, make them make them uh, palatable for yourself. Um, however, you want to do that. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. But let go of the lie. Let go of the lie that there is quote unquote bad foods because it really isn't. It's all about your perspective on that, and the French paradox proves that. So I would say people first have to be able to challenge and let go of their belief system, and that belief system in particular is that carbs are bad, which is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Um, you know, I, Like I said, again, my own example, I went to the top of the fitness industry, stayed there, I guess posed at pro shows. Uh, at my best, I was two, 260 pounds with less than 10% body fat, uh, guest posing and traveling around, doing seminars and workshops. So I not only talked the talk, I walked the walk, and you know, I ate carbs, and I still do eat carbs, and even in my mid-50s now, I'm staying lean, eating carbs. I can't imagine uh, surrendering, surrendering a whole macro group. Uh, you know, um, and thinking it's bad for me. So uh, people have to let go of what I call stinking thinking. That your problem is one of stinking thinking, and that your your thinking strategies are stinking tragedies. And until you're willing, until you're willing to let go of that, you're not going to affect much change. If you keep thinking that uh, behavior will change faulty thinking, you're going to keep honeymooning for a little while and then sabotaging yourself. Because the truth is. It's it's healthy thinking that leads to healthy behavior, not the other way around. And if you're holding on to fear of food as a premise, any kind of food, you can use starches as your go-to or gluten as your go-to. I got articles coming up on that nonsense as well. Um, you know, you can whatever you're fear-mongering with food. Just remember that fear has two acronyms to it. Um, 
face everything and respond and false evidence appearing real. And they both apply in this case. So being afraid of food, if you understand the evolution of the human brain and how we survived, it makes absolutely no sense at all to be afraid of food. And let's talk for a minute about healthy emotional attachment to food. Healthy emotional connection isn't to food, it's to the actual eating experience itself. And there's a chapter in my book about this as well. If you look, let's say you go to a mall, go to a mall today or go to a busy place and watch mothers feeding uh, young infants that still have to be fed and can't eat for themselves and watch how mothers feed their children. How do they do it? They do it with a positive emotional connection. They raise their voice in an endearing way or, you know, like, oh, here comes the choo-choo, get ready for another mouthful so that the eating experience right from the time we're born becomes something that we're health, healthily and emotionally positively connected to. As you grow up, to be separated from something that natural that as an infant, you've learned to possibly be emotionally connected to the eating experience, not food itself, but the eating experience. To think you should separate yourself from that and be fearful of the eating experience now presents a, a, an unnatural paradox in your own brain that you're never going to win because your brain is just not wired to think and feel that way. So uh, as I say in a, you know, I usually end that example by saying I've never seen a mother feed her infant with a slingshot. You know, <laughs> it, it's always with uh, an emotional connected experience, whether it's on the breast or on the bottle from the youngest that we are born as mammals, uh, you know, connecting with food in an emotional way with our parent, whether the mother's breastfeeding or not, they're usually holding the baby, nurturing the baby, and then they eating experience becomes one of an emotionally healthy nurturing experience as well. And that's why uh, food tends to be connected throughout history with celebration of holidays and stuff as well because it's natural for us to do so. And as a matter of fact, it's natural for all mammals to do so. I've never seen a single mammal or pet that I've raised who's afraid of their own food supply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are a few reasons why we do this. I think one of them is like we use these words like indulge and splurge and guilt and cheat meal and clean eating and with our culture these kind of words identify the type of person we are because we, we're very much associated with the type of food we eat. So the more we're using these words and like, oh, it's a special occasion, I can indulge, it's like automatically we feel guilt about it. Well, don't say we because I don't. <laughs> Well, not you. We as in America. <laughs> I live on a, what I call a cycle diet. A cycle diet is a diet I, I devised way back in the 90s that has taken off in many different forms since then. But uh, it basically um, – what I did was I reverse engineered – uh, the competitive experience um, that, you know, within a certain window after competing, people can eat a lot of indulgent food without any metabolic repercussions. Is, you know, they don't gain weight. They don't lose weight. Their metabolism tends to um, start to race. You know, all good things happen within a certain window of time. So I reverse engineered that to come up with something called the cycle diet, and I still do it, you know, three decades after I've discovered it. So, you know, I have at least one day a week where I eat nothing but indulgent food, and I look forward to it. I even have a separate uh, grocery shopping day specifically for that because I understand the mind's connection to that. So by associating with that and complying with that, 
I never have to worry on what I call the diet days uh, about, oh, you know, I, I don't stress, feel guilt. I don't have any of those negative emotional attachments to food because I do have a regular uh, indulgent protocol um, that I follow and have been following for years, and it works. And if you look at the things like the National Weight Control Registry and its research and things like that, you see that in the end, all this stuff falls into very uh, – you know, scientific, um, scientifically sound principles that are based on how our brains evolved to deal with uh, food and metabolism, and how it, you know, our gut response is connected to our brain response, and all these things. So, um, you know, it all makes sense. But uh, what really doesn't make sense is the whole diet mentality and thinking that self-deprivation and self-denial leads to anywhere positive because it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, we're coming up on the hour, but I have to ask you, what are your thoughts about counting calories and counting macros? Well, I think it depends where, pe where people are in their journey. Um, for one thing, we need to establish right from the get-go that calories don't measure metabolism. They never have. Calories measure a degree of heat. That's all they do. Um, so it's about the closest thing we have, but it doesn't come anywhere near uh, measuring or approximating metabolism. So it sounds nice, but it creates what I call the illusion of control. Now, there are often reasons to weigh certain foods that you eat in order to uh, not suffer from what I call portion distortion because our minds can, can be tricked by um, you know portion sizes and whatnot. That doesn't mean to count the calories in a food stuff, but you know there's certain foods that I will weigh right now. Like I, I weigh uh, the nuts I eat before I put them in uh, individual freezer bags for the week. So I will weigh stuff like that, but I don't weigh the fruit I eat. I don't weigh the chicken that I eat. I don't you know weigh you know the potato that I that I eat. Oh my God, he eats potatoes. This guy is really off his rocker. Um, so I don't weigh any of those things because I know they're healthy whole foods and my body will adjust. And, you know, we need to get rid of this uh, idea of the, what I call the illusion of control because studies have been pretty close that our bodies have a wisdom that we can't even fathom. Um, that the illusion of control doesn't give us. The North American diet mentality is locked into short-term windows. That's why you see 12-week transformation contests and whatnot because anyone can do anything for a three-month period or so. After that, what happens? You know, All this P90X and all the rest of this stuff, all done in 12-week windows because they know half of the people won't even make it to the 12 weeks and the other half that do, where are they going to be 12 weeks after that? And we know from studies that the body tends to regulate its weight over a one-year period, which means if you start 25 pounds overweight and you start your diet today, in six months, you might have lost those 25 pounds. But guess what? Eight months later, you've probably regained that 25 pounds, or maybe now it's 30 pounds. Because if you don't diet correctly, and by dieting correctly, I mean serving your body, not this nonsense of the fitness industry of, you know, we know better and do it in a healthy way. I mean, serving your body, if you don't do that in a, in a proper way, your body is going to protect you. So a lot of these people are cursing their bodies for letting them down. Well, guess what? It's been you that's letting down your body, and it's reacting to such, and it's trying to protect you. So you know, you're know you giving your body a bad rap when it's actually been you uh, making your body react the way it's been reacting. So we need to realize that how we eat and why we eat and is more important than what we eat. And in terms of that, um, you know, what we, what we, uh, how we are eating uh, is basically 
programming our metabolisms to do what they do. So it's not magic that if you gain all your weight back and then some, that's not magic. It's a very predictable scenario. Every time someone writes me with this and shows me what they're eating, I can probably tell them exactly what they're going to regain, when they're going to regain it, and how much more they're going to regain on top of that. Uh, but this is the this is the North American diet mentality nonsense world that we live in, um, and you know it it outweighs voices like mine exponentially because people love the sound of nonsense. The old saying, bullshit baffles brains. That's no more true in the fitness industry and the diet industry because people love the notion that all this stuff is rocket science. They love the notion that this require is so complicated that it requires a team of experts working around the clock in lab coats to unravel it all for you. And uh, it doesn't matter. Um, the national weight loss, if, it, if we have five minutes, do we have five minutes? Yeah, go for it. Okay, the National Weight Control Registry um, has been around for a while. And what they do, and I, I could do a whole podcast just on this, but I won't. Um, it, it was developed by a behavioral psychologist at Brown University named Rena Wing. And James Hill is a, pedi a pediatrician at the University of Colorado. And they wanted to study people who have uh, lost weight and kept it off for the long term. So they did, and they developed this registry. And the bottom line was there was no common diet among the thousands of people who lost weight and kept it off. There was no common diet among any of them. The solution wasn't what they were eating, but how and why they were eating. So in other words, they changed their minds in order to change their bodies. And what the other thing was the whole realm of eat this, not that falls apart if you look at their uh, registry. Like I said, I, I really should do a whole podcast on this. But what they found was something very, very predictable. It wasn't what they were eating that, that allowed these people to lose weight and keep it off. It was what they were – what the ones – the things they did that they had in common was – they kept to the same types of foods all the time, and this goes back to uh, other research that was done way back in the 70s that people who stay lean tend to stick to 8 to 15 foods that they just keep gravitating to and eat naturally. They don't feel like uh, you know, they should want something else, and they keep their diet – they don't deviate from their diet from Friday afternoons to Monday mornings. Most people – they found in their study the people that kept the weight off – have only one day a week where they uh, indulge in something like my cycle diet, like I mentioned earlier. Whereas people who can't keep the weight off, they sabotage their diet uh, from the weekends. So from Friday afternoons to Friday nights through the weekend till Sundays for various reasons, you know, relationships, kids, whatever. But the bottom line was it wasn't what they were eating, but how and why they were eating and not having um, what we call, you know, the same eating regimens on the weekends was why they weren't able to keep weight off. But they keep going back to, oh, no, it must be what I'm eating. Well, it's really not. It, it, you know, what, what this registry showed was the habits of people were pretty ingrained and what they ate really really was insignificant in in taking off the weight and keeping it off so you know it, it's a real uh, paradox to how people think the answer is so they bop around from paleo to you know all these diets that have to have names like someone wrote me the other day who's you know a long time uh, you know 
overweight and you know scott i did paleo and i did south beach and, I, and naming off these diets and i just wrote back and said why does eating right have to have a label why does it have to have a name behind it because in the north american diet mentality all these diets the one thing they share in common is this notion of eat this not that even though they all differ on what the eat this and not that is so um, it's really it's really quite interesting if you look at the history of diets and nutrition and just how out there we still are in the year 2014 in terms of what passes for knowledge of, of weight control and leanness. And the biology of weight control is far, far different than the science of fat loss. And that's another thing that people don't seem to understand. So I look at, you know, what's long-term sustainable uh, is, you know, a diet has to serve two purposes. It has to be sustainable and has to serve the body. Low-carb diets don't do that. They've never done that. Um, anybody living under the illusion that they do that is someone who's honeymooning on a low-carb diet. And they, you know, they'll, they'll pay for that down the road in a year or so. Uh, but they can brag about it. That's the other problem, too. People in the throes of honeymooning on, on something because they want to be right and don't want to think that they've wasted their money or their time. They will go on Facebook and all these things and, 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 you know, blah, 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 about how well it's working. Well, that's all, that's all great in the immediate sense of time, but in the residual sense of time and the cumulative sense of time, where are they six months later bragging about that same diet? I bet you they're not on, on there six or eight later bragging about that same diet because that same diet has now caused consequences. So all you get to see is that honeymoon period of people saying, oh, this diet's fantastic. And that's how this kind of plays into the whole goal of, of you know diet nonsense marketing and stuff because they rely on the honeymoon period of people to go out there and, and you know those are the ones who will talk the most and talk the loudest until the diet stops working. And when a diet stops working, People shut up because they're so they feel like you said earlier guilty and shameful. So they're not online bragging about that diet anymore. So you don't hear their voice anymore. You only hear the honeymooners, um, you know. But uh, you know when that relationship's over and that honeymoon is now a divorce, you're not going to get those people online bragging about how great the diet uh, worked when they you know lost that 15 pounds in in the first six weeks. But you know. Uh, 26 weeks later, not only have they gained that 15 pounds, they've gained another 10. So they're not going to be on Facebook bragging about that. So you know, you get you get you get a skewed you know feedback uh, when you're looking at people who are following diets because you always get the ones who are currently honeymooning in what I call the immediate sense of time. And uh, you know, those things we we tend to look at time in the fitness and diet industry in short-term windows, 12-week windows, but we don't look at you know. Um, 50-week windows or 40-week windows, and I do, and I get to see the repercussions of, of what happens after the contest and after the diet, and, you know, uh, we need to start paying more attention. We need to be be way more farsighted and way less nearsighted when it comes to seeing uh, complications with all these things that are supposedly the solutions. Yeah, and there's something you really said that stuck with me about eating, like, the 8 to, to 15 foods, I think there's something really to that because when, I mean, for lots of different reasons, but speaking personally, when I've done that and it's been very stress-free, I just happen to start eating the foods that I love over and over and over again, it seems like my weight just is very, like, maintained, it's stable, I'm never, like, bloated because I'm not stressed. And I think that when I'm stressed about what I'm eating, that's when I'm the most bloated or, like, just retaining everything it feels like. And when I just start eating foods that I love and I eat them when I'm hungry, which is a key, 
then for some reason my weight's just like perfect and I never even think about it. I just feel great all the time. I have great energy. My mind fog is away and I'm not concerned with the food going in my body because I'm just eating what I already know that's going to make me feel good um, and make me have energy for my workouts or my, my work or whatever. And whenever I was stressing about, you know, okay, I'm on doing, I'm doing low carb now, so I can't have this and this and this. And if I have this, it has to be at this time. Well, all that stress was causing me to feel bloated all the freaking time. And it made me just want those foods even more. And so once I finally gave myself permission to have it, like I'm very, I'm like, I love the paleo industry because just because I know a lot of people in it and I like the, I like a lot of them. And, you know, I, I like the, um, I like where it's going because it does seem to be going in a different direction lately. More of a, you know, paleo is a template. Um, definitely make it yours. That's what is going on at the heart of paleo. But unfortunately, well, they, they, I got to inter- I got to interrupt you there. Then they shouldn't be calling it paleo because it has nothing to do with paleolithic history and how we ate in in the paleolithic times. It has absolutely nothing to do with that at all. So um, if they're going to, you know, if they're going to call a diet based on disingenuous facts and and research. Uh, then I have a problem with that because it's misleading from the get-go. So uh, I'm not on the same page with you there, and I, I couldn't let you just say that without speaking my mind on that. But um, you know what you said though about how what works for you. I mean that's a very important stuff because, like you said, when you naturally eat and follow what's working, it keeps on working. Um, and so that's one of the things you said. And the other things you said is as you do that, you're no longer thinking about it and you're not overthinking it. Exactly. That's my whole point. Um, you know, the people who think less are the people who tend to do best. And uh, whereas the diet industry wants to keep reinforcing the people that, you know, the, the more you have to think about and the more you need to focus on this, then, you know, that's where your solution lies. Where no, that just creates more and more stress and more and more overthinking. And that's not natural for our human brains. So, um, yeah, sorry I interrupted you there. I just wanted to make that point about paleo. Well, that's okay. I was I was actually gonna say pretty much that. I was gonna say, unfortunately, um, that's not what the mainstream is learning today. <laughs> like yeah. people are taking it to a whole nother degree, and a lot of people are presenting paleo one way, but behind the scenes, they aren't eating exactly that way either. Like a lot of them support paleo or like speak about it they have books on it but in real life they're actually eating rice and they're eating oats and and I, I know this personally because i know these people and so i can say that but that's not what they're presenting to others so even the people that are up there in that industry aren't even completely practicing what they're preaching yeah there's so there's so much uh uh disingenuous you know lying flat out lying that goes on not to mention um as you said, at the top, it, it, it devolves into a level of complete nonsense. I remember being in the bookstore the other day, and I'm looking at paleo and already shaking my head in disgust. And then I look over to the to the next books beside, it and it's paleo for women. And and I really had to just laugh, and I mean, to the point where someone who was like, uh, you know, uh, turning through some of the books in that section asked me what I was laughing at, and I just said. Okay, paleo diet here, now paleo for women. Does that make sense to anybody out there? Yes, it makes sense to people who are under the delusion of the North American diet mentality. But can you imagine that your female dog has to eat different than your male dog? Can you can you imagine that you know we are members of the same species here, but now all of a sudden we should eat different because of our gender? I mean, it's absolute <laughs> crock and nonsense. Like it I just it just you look back and you stand back with someone who's got a more um, 
you know, general education, you know, like myself, not just in the industry, but beyond the industry. And, and I look at books like that and I just say, wow, like, wow, it, people will fall for anything, like paleo for women. Like, oh, no, God, <laughs> you can't eat the same as men. You're not from the same species all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And I know men I, I know men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but oh, my God, it gets ridiculous. So, uh, yeah have to end on that note. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really true. It seems like people are just dying to buy into something, and then there are people out there that are dying to create it. So it's unfortunate. But um, my last question for you that I ask all my guests is, if you had to give someone one tip for strengthening their mind-body connection, what would that tip be? Uh, oh, man. I know it's tough. Uh, uh, no, it's not tough. It's just it's not on the same page as everybody. It's just you know, uh, be real, be authentic. And if you don't know uh, how to do that, then you need to log off digital space for let's say thirty days and just find yourself. I mean, for some people, they're just that way. They're just born that way. Uh, I'm one of them. But I think people um, get overcome by thinking everyone else has the answer to their lives. But no one else is living your life, folks, except you. So in the end, people can people can be guides. As a coach, you know, uh, I can clear the path and I can, you know, provide the flashlight. But you still have to travel the territory. So, uh, you know, people need to be way more authentic than they've than they've been being in their own minds and hearts. And you, you do that, and everything falls into place. You do that, and you don't struggle with anything. And all of this stuff, in terms of it seeming so complicated it just disappears and then you see the simplicity in it all and with simplicity there's also beauty and you get connected with that and when when you're self-connected uh everything is possible and everything is simple and simple doesn't necessarily mean easy but it definitely doesn't mean complicated um so you know people need to get in touch with themselves in an authentic way and i think with digital world we're getting further and further away from that and that's causing a lot of angst a lot of the angst that people suffer is because of modern day stress and they want to believe it's because of the nutritional issues when it has nothing to do with that it's there's more disease and dis-ease caused by stress in life than is ever going to be caused because you ate gluten mm-hmm. i couldn't have said that better myself and i absolutely love 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 the message of simplification so thank you so much for coming on the show today and i'm gonna have to have you back on at some point so um thank you again and i will make sure to have the links to your books and your website on um, the show notes for this at mindbodymusings.com it's been a pleasure thank you madeline Thanks again for listening, friends. I'm Maddie Moon, and you have been enjoying the Mind Body Musings podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to rate and review it in the iTunes store as well as subscribe. Also, please remember I'm glad to continue the conversation on my website, mindbodymusings.com, where you can also sign up for my free ebook, How to Love Your Body Again 10 Easy Steps to Stop Sacrificing and Start Living. I created this book to help everyone that struggles with body image, dieting, overtraining, and negative self esteem to learn how to not only accept who you are, but love who you are. This is coming from an ex-fitness model and bikini competitor, so trust me, I know what it's like to have those struggles and to want to be rid of them. So please, if any of that sounds good, head on over to moonfitness.net and sign up. Thanks for listening!